Hello everyone. Hi, Michaela. I invited you to speak. If you just accept my invitation, yeah. Just unmute yourself, please, to test the audio and you can unmute yourself. There is um, a mic button down there on the right. Can you see the like one? It's close to it. If you just unmute yourself, we can test the sound. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Okay, all right. Okay, brilliant. We'll start in a minute. Okay. Welcome to Untold Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Osama Gawish. This week, five men were stopped from boarding a flight to Rwanda. Two days ago, seven had been expecting to be on the plane. Through the day, four of those seven made individual claims to the British courts to stop them being forcibly sent. Three more men had their deportation stopped by an intervention by the European Court of Human Rights. Along with so many people around the country, we were relieved the flight to Rwanda didn't take off, but it's clear that the government remains determined to press on with this deal. The threat of removal will continue to cause human suffering, distress, and chaos for desperate people who have escaped war, persecution, and torture. Shockingly, those at risk include young people who have been incorrectly assessed as adults. To discuss this disgraceful scenario, let me welcome my guest, Michaela Rong. Michaela has spent nearly three decades writing about Africa, first as a writer's correspondent, based in Cote d'Ivoire and former Zaire, and then at the Financial Times Africa correspondent based in Kenya. Her previous books include in the footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, the story of Mobutu Sisiko. I didn't do it for you. Focusing on Eritrea, it is our turn to eat an examination of Kenyan corruption and borderlines, a novel. Her latest book, Don't Disturb, is a scathing assessment of the Rwandan Patriotic Front and President Paul Kagame. She is based in London. So, Michaela, thank you very much for joining me today. Good evening, Osama. Good evening, and um, thank you to be here to discuss this fundamental and important topic. It it was um, a shocking and hard times and a hard week for every human being in this country, seeing this plan, um, waiting the deportation or stopping this deportation. So let me um, kick off this discussion with this question. What is the Rwanda scheme? And why is it controversial? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, uh, the Rwanda scheme was signed between our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, who ironically is actually herself from a family of refugees, asylum seekers, mm. yeah. who uh, were Asians living in Uganda and had to flee the country under Idi Amin and were given refuge here in the UK. But she is not somebody who is at all sympathetic 
um, to um, people who uh, in our current uh, days and our current climate are seeking asylum here in the UK. Um, and there's a, a feeling here in Britain that uh, too many people are arriving, too many people are arriving illegally. Uh, what you see is a phenomenon. Um, a few years back, people used to sneak into the backs of, um, of trucks and lorries that were coming across the border from France. Now it's become very much something that happens by sea. And um, what you see are, are, are human traffickers who will load um, refugees, um, would-be asylum seekers, uh, onto very unsafe and leaky boats in Calais, um, uh, along the coastline with France, and then they are left to make their way across this rather risky waterway, the Channel, and um, and make it to British waters. And there's been a feeling in Britain that this is unacceptable because the numbers have been going up and up and up. Um, um, last year, we had 28,500 people arriving in this way. This year, just um, since the beginning of year, there have already been 10,000. Um, and, and, you know, back in um, 2020, it was only 8,500. So um, this has been a very, um, you know, the, the Conservative Party to whom Priti Patel belongs have made a big thing about um, their willingness to control un uh, illegal migration. And this has been, she portrays herself as a very strong, a very hard line, um, a minister, and um, this goes down very well with the the right wing of the Conservative Party. So at a certain stage, having tried various methods to de deter people from getting into these leaky boats, uh, some of them were drowning uh, on the way, many of them were drowning on the way, yeah. um, Priti Patel signed this deal with Rwanda, uh, the Central African country of Rwanda, which has agreed to take people um, and then process their applications uh, 4,000 miles from the UK. They'll be flown to Rwanda and their, their applications will be processed there. And then if they don't um, um, uh, win asylum, they will be encouraged to um, either go back to their, their countries from which they came or go to third party countries. And if they do win asylum, they'll be the, the idea is that they would settle not in Britain, but in Rwanda. So it's a very radical, very flamboyant, very controversial policy. Uh, and it's won a lot of um, criticism here in the UK. Um, yeah. the, the bishops, the religious um, establishment here said they regard it as immoral. But, but you know, Michaela, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, for example, I, I'm a refugee. And can you imagine with me now? I, I fled my country. I fled, um, I fled the persecution and repression in Egypt. And then... I, I came to, I arrived to the UK by a, a plane and I booked my ticket. It's okay. But let's imagine together I crossed the Mediterranean with, and I arrived to Europe and then went to Calais and then tried to cross the English Channel with a dinghy. And when I arrived, I found Prince Batel, deported me in plane to Rwanda. And after a year or 40 months, they declined my refugee status, and then the Rwandan government sent me back to Egypt. It, is this humane? Yes. 
Well, um, the, the government here, the Conservatives, would say that you don't have the right to choose where you settle because they would say, well, you're fleeing your country, you, maybe you fear persecution, uh, maybe your life is in danger, so you should accept to live in the first safe place which you find. And they say in the case of the people who are in Calais, which is in France, they are safe. The French are not persecuting them. The French are not torturing them in prison. Um, and so why aren't they settling there? And so they say, well, if they don't want to settle in, in France, they don't have the right to come to the UK. Uh, and it's not up to a would-be asylum seeker to decide, you know, he doesn't have a carte blanche to say, I want to live in this particular country or this other country. Um, he His priority has to be his safety. And he is safe in France. So why isn't he taking asylum? Why isn't he applying for asylum in France? France. And so does this make sense? To that. Does, the, does uh, this response from the government or this concept make sense for you? Well, it does make sense in that according to asylum law, you're supposed to apply for, uh, I believe that you're supposed to apply for asylum in the first country that hmm. you land in. Or, I, I mean, I'm not, I have to stress, I'm not a refugee Uh, hmm. law expert but um, I think that that has always been the general understanding that um, you know that when a when a, someone is fleeing persecution that they land in a safe country and then it would make sense for them to apply uh, in that country but of course what we know is that people tend to go where they speak the language where they think they have job prospects and often where they have family and friends hmm. uh, and a lot of the um, asylum seekers uh, who are gathered in, in Calais and trying to cross into Britain uh, Uh, they probably don't speak French um, and they they have family in the UK. They have, uh, you know, f uh, family and friends and they probably think that, that they will be able to use their skills um, more uh, more easily in the UK because of, of that fact than they can in France. Yeah. So I think it's a mixture of factors. But I, I mean, I, I I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the yeah. law on this subject, but I do know that the UNHCR, which, of course, is an expert on refugee law, they say that the uh, British policy is completely outrageous um, and that it's unacceptable uh, and they seem to think it's illegal. So Priti Patel insists that it is legal. Uh, the, the policy is going through judicial review, which means it's mm. going to be studied in the courts here and then they will they will um, produce a ruling. But uh, Priti Patel is adamant that it is legal. The UNHCR seems to be equally insistent that it is not legal. Yeah. Um, so it, it is an, it's going to be an important test. But the thing is that even before the judicial review had taken place, Priti Patel wanted these people to be, you know, this very flamboyant performance where she wanted these people to be on the plane and being flown out to Rwanda as a deterrent, as a warning sign to all the other families hmm. and asylum seekers who are waiting in Calais. It was kind of like, this is what's going to happen to you. Okay, I, I will come shortly to the the role of ECHR, but um, the, the government, there is um, um, a strong argument in the last week. Uh, many people, refugees and other lawyers and journalists, they um, had this debate and this argument with the government um, regarding, we are not France, we are not Germany, regarding the number of refugees and asylum seekers arrived uh, to the country. So what do you think, what are the main reasons beyond the, the UK government's plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda? Well, um, I mean, you're quite right in, in suggesting that the, the, Brit, the British um, do not receive quite um, anything like as many Uh, refugees or asylum seekers as countries like France or Germany, which get many, many more. 
And of course, we know that most people who apply for asylum or, or, or flee the countries where they'd feel unsafe, they tend to stay in countries neighboring, uh, you know, where they come from, because they hope to be able to go home one day. Um, and so they don't want to cross halfway across the world. Um, so, so we know that. So Britain is actually fairly lucky. But I mean, it has to be said there is a trend across the world um, at the moment in Western Europe um, to be very sensitive uh, on the topic of immigration. And we've seen this not only in the UK, there are many, many countries um, in Europe which um, are, uh, have, have elected often right-wing governments which have anti-immigration policies and make a great deal about their anti-immigration policies when they are running for election. So we've seen this, for example, in Denmark, which is considering introducing very similar uh, law to what British Pat uh, Priti Patel has just unveiled here in the UK. And there are there are other countries that have become, you know, surprisingly anti-immigration. And, you know, this goes along with the, the rise of populism, the rise of a sort of sense of xenophobia um, uh, across across Europe. You know, we are in a period in which um, uh, social media has yeah. allowed people in the developing world often to sort of see uh, better lives. Uh, transport is cheaper. Uh, you know, flights are affordable. And and there is a much there is this phenomenon of sort of global immigration. And there is also a phenomenon in which um, the West uh, Western countries are saying, well, we can't we can't accept these people. This 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 isn't acceptable. You know, there is no yeah. room room in our schools. We don't have housing. We don't have room in our hospitals to treat these people. You know, we can't accept them. We cannot welcome them all. Hmm. And regarding the ECHR, what is the European Court of Human Rights and why it intervene? Um, well, into the yes, it's very, it was a, a last minute intervention because um, originally we had been hearing that maybe 130 people would go to Rwanda at the beginning of this week. Then the numbers kept going down and down and down. And I think we were down to about seven. And so it was an, an intervention by the European um, Court of Human Rights. And the European Court of Human Rights is often seen in the UK as being, you know, part of the EU. It's a European thing. And people are saying, but, you know, Brexit, Brexit meant that Britain left Europe and the European Union. So so why should we obey the, the, the laws from the European Court of Human Rights? But the European, the, this is where the problem arises, because the European Court of Human Rights is is nothing to do with the EU. Um, it is something that was set up at Britain's insistence after World War II. Uh, Winston Churchill, our great national hero, was a, a key player in setting it up. Uh, and it was a reaction to the massive human rights abuses that the Europe and the world had seen with the rise of Nazism in, uh, in, um, in Germany and fascism in Italy and the terrible loss of life that had come about because of World War II. So the response was to say, we need a court that will um, make countries respect their own rules. Hmm. Um, and, um, and that it, 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 it has 46 member countries, including the UK. Uh, one of the member countries until just recently this year was Russia. So it isn't an European Union body. 
but there is a feeling, you know, the, the, the Conservative Party in 2015 had talked about leaving the European Court of Human Rights. So this intervention in Rwanda has triggered a lot of um, right-wing pundits, right-wing newspapers, right-wing supporters to say, well, this just underlines that the Conservative Party was right and uh, this is a sovereign issue. We should have the right to decide mm. what happens, what we do with our refugees and our migration, immigration problems. Uh, and this court needs to just, we need to sort of rescind, we need to sort of um, just abandon and, and withdraw from that um, European Court of Human Rights. I think that would be a really radical step. And it's um, this morning, it was quite clear that a lot of ministers and government were being asked about that by by, yeah. by journalists. Are you planning to withdraw? And they would not be drawn. But it was originally in their manifesto when they were campaigning for Brexit that they would do that. Hmm. And, and do you think the government will go ahead to withdraw from this court? I think it's too early to say. I think it would be immensely uh, controversial because, mm -hmm. um, of course, the European Court of Human Rights um, guarantees all sorts of fundamental human rights that Britain believes in. And, you know, as I said, it was Winston Churchill who was who was the sort of key player in setting up this court in the first place. It's not a European Union imposition on us. So I think it would be immensely controversial. And it, yeah, I think the fact that the, the, the various people interviewed on, on British radio and television uh, today were sort of very much not promising to go down that route, suggests that they realise that might be a big deal. But I think what we can say is that um, this whole episode with the European Court of Human Rights has allowed the Rwanda policy, which has been very controversial here, to become a pawn in this whole debate in Britain about, you know, our attitude and allegiance towards Europe in the wake of Brexit. There's still a big population, a big part of the population here that voted to remain in, in the European Union. And so this, this whole incident will be used by people who voted to leave and won that argument. We have left yeah. the European Union. This whole incident will be used to sort of say, you see, you know, we're better off on our own and we need to see this through and we need to re, uh, to leave this court as well. So and, and, uh, it's, yeah. become a, it's become a card in this game of isolationism and national sovereignty. And if the circumstances stay as they are, um, the, the ECHR will be able to stop another Rwandan flight? Um, uh, I think uh, this was done on an interim basis, um, and the idea was that um, uh, the whole policy needs to be uh, assessed by British courts, which it hasn't been yet because it was really rushed through, and that once um, the British courts have done this judicial re review, then um, you know the European Court of Human Rights would not need to intervene. So. Um, I mean, it really depends how 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 determined Priti Patel is to keep pressing for these flights to take off. I, I haven't personally heard of another flight being assembled. I think she would look pretty silly if she did that. And don't let's not forget that um, chartering a plane and having it sitting on a tarmac in Britain waiting to take off and then not taking off is a very expensive thing to do. Yeah, so but do you think Priti Patel is the kind of ministers who give up? After one round? Oh, no, I'm not saying she's giving up. <laughs> yeah. But I think she, uh, she might um, sort of, uh, uh, she Postpone. might sort of hang back and sort of wait a bit for the judicial review process to take place. 
and yeah. I also think, you know, there are many people commenting on this whole chapter who are saying it, it doesn't really matter if it works or not, that maybe Priti Patel really didn't ever expect, you know, tens of thousands. The government was talking about tens of thousands of people being sent to Rwanda, but that she never really expected those kind of figures to be sent there, but that it was about uh, a very high profile, very radical policy which she realized, and so did Boris Johnson, the prime minister, knew it was going to be very controversial. And that's what they wanted, because they have had all sorts of embarrassing stories here in the UK, including about the parties that were staged during COVID in Downing Street. So they needed a nice, big, meaty story to distract people from that those embarrassing incidents. And here, yeah. the Rwanda asylum policy is, has provided that distraction. So, you know, if you're going to be cynical, you can say it's already served its purpose. Yeah. And I think the other part of the story and the, the most important part of the story is there in Rwanda. And you spent many years covering the situation in Africa and in Rwanda. Um, what, what do you think, Michaela, from the government perspective, why Rwanda specifically? Well, I mean, let, let's not forget that um, uh, Priti Patel approached quite a few different um, places um, uh, in an yeah. attempt to find a, a partner for her policy of offshore offshoring asylum requests. So apparently <clears throat> she had approached Uganda, Kenya. I think there was also an approach made to Gibraltar, to Ascension Island. So uh, they asked around. I think also Zambia. Zambia was in the mix. Um, and Rwanda was the country that stepped up to the plate. I'm not surprised by that because um, President Paul Kagame is a great, has a huge appetite. He, he runs this tiny, tiny little country that um, he likes having it constantly in the news. You know, he likes it to be talked about all the time. He likes mm. to be seen as a yeah. dynamic and radical, um, a, a problem-solving African leader who, whose country, whose tiny country punches above its weight. So I can see for him the appeal is, um, lots of headlines, lots of kudos, lots of gratitude from a Western government, uh, a fair amount of money going along with that deal because they were being offered £120 million as a down payment on this deal. And then the idea was that the, you know, there would be more and more money, the more and more refugees were being processed. Um, so it was certainly uh, going to be a lucrative deal. Um, uh, in my view, Rwanda is the most inappropriate place in Africa to choose. And there, there are many reasons for that. The first being this is a very, very crowded and tiny country which hasn't got any available spare land. It already has its own refugee population uh, and its own ref refugee problem, 140,000 refugees. Um, it's got it's the most densely populated country in Africa. So there is not land available to be handed out to Iraqis, Eritreans, Syrians, Iranians um, and Afghanis being sent over from here. Um, uh, and, and then there are all sorts of issues about human rights. This is a very repressive police state where local citizens are treated really badly. Anything mm. approaching political dissent is crushed. There's no free press. The elections are routinely rigged uh, and the, the, the human rights groups talk about uh, extrajudicial killings, torture in detention centers, disappearances that can never be explained. So you, you don't send people who are fleeing one repressive regime and expect them to stay in that kind of society and integrate peacefully. They're just not going to. So it was always an inappropriate choice. 
But I think Preeti Patel, Boris Johnson and the Conservative government here, they, they all know this situation in Rwanda. They all know about the repression, about the human rights violation, about every single word you just mentioned now, Michaela. But they insist um, to send well, the asylum seeker there. Yeah. I think they see what they want to see. And I think what they saw in Rwanda was that development economists and aid officials and people who work for the development ministries in Western governments hmm. constantly talk up Rwanda's uh, economic and development progress uh, and uh, talk about how amazing the country has been since the genocide that it has um, scored on all these development indicators, you know, um, uh, maternal mortality, primary school attendance, vaccination rates, and and they that's that's they saw that and they didn't consider anything else. They didn't look at the human rights reports. They didn't look at the concerns that their own British officials have repeatedly voiced in public meetings, saying you know we're really concerned about the, the Rwandan government's failure to address and investigate these issues, and they just saw growth rates and development, you know, various boxes being ticked on the development front. So um, they saw what they wanted to see. Uh, I the, don't believe that yeah. either Priti Patel or Boris Johnson knows very much about Rwanda. Yeah, because this is raising another question. Are, are they doing this intentionally, just ignoring the human rights violation and focus on another part of the story? Yes, I think they are. They're, they're, they're being selective in their judgment. I, I've been talking to people um, in the Foreign Office here in Britain, and they sort of say nobody nobody consulted us, nobody talked to us, nobody asked us about whether we thought this policy was appropriate. I think the, the Home Office, which is a, our domestic um, ministry, uh, was left to take charge. Uh, I don't think they did due diligence. They didn't want to. And so they didn't read, um, you know, up on Rwanda. If they had read my book, they would yeah. have known that it, this, country, this is a country that has a really um, worrying record, not only on, on how it treats people at home, but also how it reaches around the world and um, assassinates, intimidates, uh, bullies um, uh, Rwandan dissidents, human rights activists and journalists who are living in the West or who have moved to Australia or have moved to Canada and North America. So um, I, if they had bothered to do due diligence, they would have noticed all these things, but they really just didn't want to. So they, they okay. were very happy to skim along on, on the development statistics. If they didn't um, read your book, if they didn't mm -hmm. know about the, the, the decline situation of human rights in, in Rwanda, I believe that they read the tweet from ITV correspondent in Rwanda in the last week. <laughs> Yeah, he, he yeah. described the dangerous and inhumane situation in Rwanda regarding human rights and repression. He wrote that many people who were interviewed by him were interrogated by the government. So this is crystal clear. This place is dangerous. So where is yes, the government here? I, I thought that was a fascinating series of tweets. I congratulate him on being a young reporter who'd never been to Rwanda before, but who immediately got the point that this is 
a repressive society. It is a police state and it's a state where people um, look over their shoulders before they speak to you. And if they do speak to you openly uh, and, and convey their feelings of uh, disquiet, um, there will be often repercussions for those people. And I, I, I congratulate him on his reporting because he immediately understood and saw that. But I don't believe that young man knew anything about Rwanda before he went there. And I think there is this extraordinary ignorance um, amongst the British media, which isn't very curious about what happens in places in Africa uh, and uh, and also um, amongst, um, you know, British officials who, who are not paid to be interested in uh, in Africa or in anywhere outside British borders. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the, the positive sides of this policy is that a lot of British journalists are going to be flying out to Kigali, uh, mm. that we've got the Commonwealth meeting coming up there and Prince Charles who has said he finds he finds this whole policy repugnant He's, he used the word appalling um, uh, he's going to be there to open the Commonwealth meeting in Kigali and there's going to be a lot of British uh, journalists there and that's great I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted because journalists even British journalists who tend to just write about the royal family hmm. um, you know will start digging around and start describing what they see and do you think this may be or could it change the, 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 the situation? Well, I don't think the interest in Rwanda will, uh, by the British media, the sudden uh, interest they have is going to remain unless the policy remains. So it really depends how hard Priti Patel decides to push this policy. If she abandons it, I think the British media will lose all interest in Rwanda and they will never write another word about Rwanda for the next five years. Mm. If she pursues it and the British government keeps trying to get people on flights and maybe ends up sending significant numbers of uh, asylum seekers there, then I think the Rwandans should be ready to accept the fact that they will have to also allow in British journalists, and with them will go the very um, disrespectful uh, and sometimes challenging yeah. and subversive attitudes of British journalism. And good for them. I hope they give the Rwandan officials uh, a, a good, um, you know, a, yeah. a, a thorough examination. Okay, the, there is um, a heartbreaking story in the Independent this morning by May Pullman and Bill True. And they, I, I, I quote from this article, like I was going to be executed on board the failed Rwanda deportation flight. They both said um, at the beginning of this uh, article, forced to the floor of the plane, his head held down. Zoran was told he would be taken to Rwanda no matter what. The 25-year-old cord strapped into a restraining harness like a dog was one of the few asylum seekers to be taken onto the controversial deportation flight before it was grounded at the last minute after European judges intervened on Tuesday night. This is a question, Michaela. Why are the British officers doing this to asylum seekers? Well, they're doing it because that's what they're told to do. That's the policy. And I have to say, I've been on flights flying to Kenya in which people were being deported. Uh, yeah. because the asylum uh, requests have been turned down in Britain. And uh, that wasn't a particularly ple pleasant experience. I remember uh, two policemen 
uh, a handcuffed man and he was moaning and weeping and crying. And then it has to be said that once the plane took off and he realised that there was no point continuing to protest because he was now going to be flown all the way back to Africa where he had come from, uh, he, he, he calmed down and I think he was quiet and sat there peacefully for the rest of the flight. But this is the reality of deportation. Um, you know, uh, if 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 somebody is 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 you know has been has been uh, slated for deportation, they will be deported, and if they object and they struggle, they will be put in handcuffs and harnesses. So yeah, that that is the reality. It's, it's, it's like a nightmare, Michaela. You know. Yeah. No. You're well, feeling I that agree. you are safe and everything is. Well, I agree. If you, I was yeah. a conservative um, minister, I would say to you that it's, uh, you know, it's not um, worse than the treatment that the, the human traffickers are subjecting these hmm. asylum seekers to, because, you know, in what we're seeing is that often they are forced to pay huge amounts of money. They're put into boats that are, are uh, unsafe uh, with um, safety jackets that are not sufficient. Um, they are often designed to sink these boats because that way the calculation is that the British Coast Guards will pick them up and take them to yeah. safety. The danger of that policy is that these people may not be salvaged and saved in time and will sink without anyone saving them. So then they're just fated to drown. And and one of the the um, the, the, the propaganda lines that sort of uh, uh, from the British government is, you know, this is a, a disgusting trade by human traffickers it's illegal it's exploitative it's abusive and the only way we can think of breaking it up is by sending okay. people offshore okay and, and if That's we if we agree line, you know. okay if we say okay this does make sense and the brilliant this is a horrific thing and these traffickers should be stopped and enough is enough okay i agree about all of these points but do you think that from the government perspective sending people asylum seeker to a dangerous place like rwanda is the best way to stop traffickers and smugglers? Um, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not an expert on refugees, and I, I think it's a thorny issue. I think there are no easy answers. I do think that the rules and conventions that were brought in in the 1950s, when the world was a very, very different place, hmm. uh, when the um, the pressure um, on uh, Western governments to accept immigrants, uh, asylum seekers or migrants was very, very different when the factors behind um, uh, refugee uh, exoduses were, 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 were completely different. I think that those rules need to be looked at again. Um, but I also, uh, I, I think one of the problems we have is that um, uh, there seems to be some reluctance to deal with the criminal gangs that are organizing this trade. Uh, I find it very hard to understand how it isn't possible to uh, work out who who these these human traffickers are. I mean, it hmm. must be the same gangs again and again and again uh, who are. And we know, you know, the the French police and the and the British Coast Guard they know which 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 uh, beaches these these boats are, are leaving from. I think the other issue that the Brits should focus on is improving their relationship with the French government, with whom we are on very bad terms for a variety of reasons. Uh, and clearly the French are very happy to let people take off from the Calais coastline because they, they it's a headache for them to deal with these large communities of refugees who don't want to be in France and are just sitting in Calais waiting to cross the water. Um, and they let them do that. 
But if there had been a better relationship between the British authorities and the French authorities, then I think it would have been possible to deal with the human traffickers a lot more efficiently. Yeah, my, my second episode on this podcast here in Colin was about the death in the English Channel um, last year, the, the, um, the tragic um, incidents when 27 people died while crossing um, last year. So do you think this incident encouraged the, the UK government to go ahead for this Rwanda scheme? Well, I think that incident, which got a lot of coverage here, um, did trigger this feeling of something must be done. You know, we have to take radical action. And that was certainly the way the, the British government responded to it. That was the way the British media responded to it. Uh, and that is an incident that is constantly being referred to to justify this Rwanda uh, asylum uh, deal that was signed. So it's certainly mm. played, uh, it's, it's, it's been a factor in this new deal. Okay, and if the government, one of the reasons beyond this Rwanda scheme is to reduce the number of asylum seekers who arrive to this country, why they are offering Ukrainian refugees fleeing their well, country. This is, this is one of the the, yeah. the issues because um, uh, we've had um, offers of asylum to Afghanis and also to Ukrainian refugees. And the reason for the offers being made to the Afghans was that um, they had been through um, a, 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 a war that was um, conducted by NATO against the Taliban. At a certain stage, NATO pulled out, the US pulled out, NATO followed. And therefore, it was incumbent on the members, uh, the countries that had been part of that military operation to offer safe haven to those who would have been certainly targeted by the Taliban once the uh, Western allies withdrew. So there was a feeling that that was morally incumbent uh, on the British uh, government. Um, with the Ukrainians, I think similarly, there's a, a feeling of this is a, a war that we care very much about because um, there's a feeling here in the UK that uh, if uh, if we let Russia win this particular battle, then we can expect other neighbouring territories um, to be next and that there's something taking place, a sort of a, a land grab, a sort of massive greedy land grab being staged by um, uh, President Putin that is rather reminiscent of what we saw in Europe in the build up to World War Two. And mm. so it feels like an existential um, uh, conflict and the refugees are seen as being part of that existential conflict in which um, Western countries feel that their own survival as liberal democracies is at stake and they yep. don't feel that um, with some of the you know uh, asylum seekers who are turning up uh, in the UK and I'm, in every case you can make an argument for why they should think that but they don't hmm. um, but also I mean I agree that the, the, the end result is that this looks like a very racist policy because what yeah. you have is Iranians, Eritreans, Syrians uh, Afghans Iraqis, anyone with brown skin basically uh, being sent to Rwanda uh, whereas Ukrainians are being welcomed under a government scheme here in the UK, you know, Brits are being encouraged to welcome these people into their home and in fact are even being incentivized with a payment from the government, regular payments every month to take in Ukrainian refugees. So um, it yeah. looks very bad but there are reasons, you know, why that that difference in policy has developed. Yeah. And my final question, Michaela, it's about this point. 
I um, watched an interview. Um, Pierce Morgan interviewed Hassan Akkad. He's a Syrian refugee, arrived uh, 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 crossing the English Channel via dinghy five or six years ago, and he volunteered in the front line uh, during the pandemic. And he's a BAFTA winner. So, yes. yeah, I, I, I think you know him well. And when Pierce asked him about the Ukrainian issues and what his thoughts about this um, hypocrisy, as he um, explained, Hassan said, it it's, shouldn't be about what the government's concerned about or to, if the Ukrainian war is worrying the, the UK government or not. It's about humanity. It's about these people are human being and the government should respect them and should respect their background, their fleeing persecution and so on. So what do you think about his answer? Well, I, I completely understand it. And, you know, I have a lot of friends in, in Britain who at one stage were asking for asylum and have been granted it here. And I'm very glad they were given asylum. Um, and in each individual case that I've ever dealt with, in which people have sometimes asked me for help, or ask me for advice, or ask me to help them, you know, support themselves while they're waiting, waiting for their applications to be processed. You always feel, of course, this person should be given asylum. But I have to say that also, you can see that how an accumulation of cases in which in every case, it seems to be perfectly justified, and the humane thing to do, you can see that in the end, the end result is that we have higher immigration rates than for, you know, ever before. Um, so this this is the problem that individually in each case it always makes sense to grant asylum, but um, I also understand the perspective of people here in the UK who sort of say we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the schools, we don't have the hospitals, um, the school places, hospitals, we don't have the free housing. You know we have limited resources here. Yes, we are a Western country, we are prosperous, but we can't just suddenly take in. Uh, tens of thousands of people that we weren't expecting to receive um, because, you know, there are limits. It's not like we, we can just expand and, and take as many people uh, as want to come in because um, every society has its limits. So uh, I'm very sympathetic to uh, those arguments as well. But I know that in the cases of all my friends, I've always thought, well, why shouldn't the authorities, why don't the authorities see see how 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 you know, how much they deserve to live here. So it's it's always difficult in these cases. Thank you very much, Michaela Rong, for being with me today. Thank you, Osama. And good night, everyone. Bye.